Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hongs with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode three of The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. He started this journey telling us that we all have a technology in our brains that we can use right now to predict violence, our intuition. He's given us crazy examples of people who acknowledged their intuition, but then also people who ignored it. And then we've been walking into a breakdown, a play-by-play of the of the attack on Kelly that uh, started this whole thing. Go listen to episode one and two to get up to speed. But we've talked through a few of these signals, you know, force teaming. Oh, you know, man, we've got a hungry cat. Hey, bitch, I have a hungry cat. Okay, you are a weird guy in my apartment. Charm, niceness, too many details. But Gavin had just teased us saying we're about to hear one more signal, the most universally significant one of all, someone ignoring the concept of no. Discounting no. No is a word that must never never be negotiated because the person who chooses not to hear it is trying to control you. The worst response when someone fails to accept no is to give ever-weakening refusals and then give in. So I remember I went to my friend's house, redneck friend, shout out, and he's got even a, a double redneck friend. They were both there. I was feeling kind of sick. It was like that pre-sick where it was like, man, I really shouldn't drink that much and I should just go to bed early. But I was like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to stay the night. I'm going to hang out for a little bit. But then giant six foot five double redneck friend was like, but buddy, you're so fun to drink with. I'm like, well, I am pretty fun to drink with, but I still, I've got to be responsible, man. He's like, well please i'm like no um no i don't think so he's like at least have one drink with me i'm like okay one drink and then had one drink and then it was like hey man you know what you should do hey if troy stays will you get super drunk to my my other friend and then everybody just agreed that if i stayed we'd hold the craziest most fun party ever and i stayed so don't give those um progressively weakening nose you have to be firm about it like hey man listen dude i got a busy week i cannot stay okay but i was just like whatever and it turns out like the alcohol cured the sickness i didn't even get sick the criminal's process of victim selection which gavin calls the interview is similar to a shark encircling their prey the predator is looking for a vulnerable someone who will allow him to be in control and just as he constantly gives signals so does he read them So this is really interesting. The man in the underground parking lot who approaches a woman as she puts groceries in her trunk may be a gentleman or he may be conducting an interview trying to see how easy of a victim she is. A woman whose shoulders tense slightly and timidly says, no, thanks. I've I've got it. You know, I'm not going to spend the night. I don't want to drink too much tonight. Might be his victim where a woman who confidently turns and says, I've got it. I don't need your help. Might not. So my wife is a badass and um, dude, when we lived in the ghetto, she, um, and we didn't quite realize, like we were kind of looking back, man, I would maybe lived a little bit differently for those couple years, but we lived in the ghetto and we were like, the ghetto's awesome. So we both obviously immediately got rescue pit bulls because <laughs> duh. And um, my wife's pit bull, so nice. I mean, we'll say selectively nice, very owner protective, never had any issues with any people, might have not been the most socialized dog because she was a traumatized former bait dog from dog fighting, but like super cool and great and a wonderful dog named Noonie, rest in peace. And uh, she, my wife was walking Noonie and uh, some guy was like, hey, ponytail. And she's like, just keeps walking hey ponytail and she looks around and he's like ponytail where are you going and she's like you talking to me and he's like yeah 
you need anything? Can I get your number? And I swear, unless my wife's lying to me, my wife goes, you want to keep your fucking teeth? And he's like, uh, yeah, ponytail, I do. Why? And she goes, because if you want to keep your fucking teeth, you turn the fuck around. And dude, there's a universe where I come home and my wife and my wife's former traumatized bait fighting dog used self-defense on this guy and ate this this guy in self-defense luckily that parallel universe didn't happen and she just didn't (laughs) she did not slowly get chipped away on a no she went on the offense you want to keep your teeth boy turn around but that's a key point a decent man would understand her reaction in fact any reaction even anger from a decent man who has no sinister intent is preferable to continued attention from a violent man who might have used your concern about rudeness to his advantage. A woman alone who needs assistance is actually far better off choosing someone and asking for help as opposed to waiting for an unsolicited approach. The person you choose is nowhere near as likely to bring hazard to you as the person who chooses you. So Gavin's going to pull all those different techniques that we've covered into one example, pulling it all together. I recently got a close look at several of the strategies outlined above. I was on a flight from Chicago to Los Angeles, seated next to a teenage girl who was traveling alone. A man in his 40s had been watching her from across the aisle. So Gavin, I think Gavin's in the middle seat. She's on the aisle seat. A dude across the aisle is on the other aisle seat. He's 40, he's been watching her. He took off his headphones in a dramatic flare and said, these things don't get loud enough for me. And then he looks at her, holds out his hand and says, I'm Billy. Though it may not have been immediately apparent, his statement was actually a question and the young girl responded with exactly the information Billy wanted, her name. Then Billy sat next to her and figured out a bunch of information about her. Billy goes, oh, you know, I, I hate landing in a city not knowing if anyone's going to meet me. And she's like, well, you know, um, I, I don't, yeah, I think my friends are going to pick me up, but I don't, I don't really know where I'm going to stay. And he goes, yeah, you know, friends can really let you down sometimes. Yeah, the people I'm staying with, thus implying not family, are actually expecting me on a later flight. And Billy says, hey, I love the independence of arriving in a city where nobody knows I'm coming. Which, if you think about it, is virtually the opposite of what he'd said a moment before about hating to arrive and not be met. But he says but you're probably not that independent to her. And she she quickly volunteers. Oh no, I've been traveling alone since I was 13. And Billy goes, man, you know, you sound like a woman I know from Europe, more like a woman than a teenager. Then he handed her his scotch and pressured her to drink. So Gavin, you know, Mr. Runs an 800 person consulting company on violence is sitting there front row seat, looks at Billy, sees his muscular build, the old tattoo on the top of his wrist, his cowboy boots, the fact he's drinking on a morning flight. I knew he'd recently been in jail. And so if he's flying from Chicago to LA, there's no like even jet lag excuse for that. You know, because if if you drink at, you know, 6 a, if you drink at 6 a.m. in Florida, but you're on East Coast time, like that's 9 a.m. Maybe that's mimosa time. But he's he's drinking at, a, he's going to LA. He's leaving at, you know, what, 7 a.m. So he's drinking at 4 a.m. L.A. time. Something is going on. In a period of just a few minutes, I'd watched Billy used force teaming, too many details, loan sharking, charm, typecasting. I'd also seen him discount the girl's no when he offered her the drink. When Billy got up to go to the bathroom, I asked the girl if I could talk to her for a second. It speaks to the power of predatory strategies that she hesitantly said yes but she was glad to talk to Billy, but wary of a passenger who asked permission to speak to her. So Gavin's like, hey, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And she's like, yeah. When she just had been talking to this guy who didn't ask for permission, who's just using all these fucking tactics. But Gavin's like, hey, he's gonna offer you a ride to the airport. He's not a good guy. Don't do it. Uh, The flight lands, they get the baggage claim, and Gavin sees Billy at baggage claim and he was asking the girl to give her a ride, but she was adamantly saying no. 
Finally, Billy gave up and got angry and left. A far cry from the nice guy he was pretending to be. There was no movie on the flight, but Billy had let me watch the classic performance of an interview. Even the simplest street crime is preceded by clues. Most complicated crimes, such as those committed by a serial rapist or killer, require a series of specific conditions to be met. So, all this shit, like we think that crime is this just magic thing that happens, but there's all these different conditions that have to happen before the crime can work. Like, you have to be engaged with the victim. Like, the person has to be like, oh man, you know, no, I'm not going to stay the night. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we'll all get wasted if you stay the night. I'm like, okay, I'll stay the night. Uh, like, so a bunch of stuff has to happen. And some things, like your appearance or or the killer's type, it's uncontrollable. But those things that involve making yourself available to a criminal are directly in your control. Most of all, you can control your response to the tests the interviewer applies to you. Will you engage with a stranger when you'd rather not? Can you be manipulated by guilt? Will you yield to a stranger? Most importantly, will you honor your intuition? If it turns out there's no hazard, you've lost nothing. You've just added a new layer distinction to your intuition. The intuitive signal of the highest order, the one with the greatest urgency, is fear. Accordingly, it should always be listened to. The next level is apprehension, then suspicion, then hesitation, then doubt, gut feelings, hunches, curiosity. There are also nagging feelings, persistent thoughts, physical sensations, dark humor. Um, and what he's just laying out here is that like fear, like that fear that Kelly felt when it's like, get out of your apartment right now or die. That's not always going to be there. But there's lower level versions of that where there's apprehension, there's suspicion. You know, it's like, hmm, something's fucked up about these guys at the gas station. I'm going to park over here and I'm going to be ready to leave. Uh, but even dark humor. You know, apparently with the Unabomber, you know, that guy who sent a bunch of bombs, uh, a non-trivial amount of people joked and they were like, hey, I better open this out here so that when the bomb goes off, it's fine. And then, God damn it, it was the bomb. <laughs> it did go off. Because with this type of humor, like an idea comes into your consciousness but that context seems so outlandish as to be ridiculous and that's precisely why it's funny the point is the idea came to your consciousness so it's like so gavin says if he's leaving a client and the client's like hey i'll see you tomorrow unless i've been shot gavin sits back down because gavin's like there's something going on there and so you know the kaleidoscope of the potential tips that you can get from your intuition sometimes a shout but it's sometimes a whisper of like duck because something's coming at your head and the whole point here is that our intuition is constantly sampling the world and looking for threats and though it might not be right all the time the negative of acting on it is much lower than the negative of ignoring it the stories in this chapter have been about the dangers posed by strangers but what about the dangers that might come from those who, who we choose to bring into our lives? The employees, the employers, people we date, people we marry. Our relationships actually start with predictions. So it's time to look at the quality of those predictions. So imagine it's the year 2050. You have a device that can predict intention of anyone you meet. You're walking in the park with your six-year-old daughter and you get an urgent call to go to work. You walk up to a random lady you scan her with your device. She, the device says, safe, good intentions. You leave your daughter with her. The story sounds far-fetched, but every day, people make the same but less good predictions about babysitters, and we don't do it as quickly or as accurately. With behavior, as with gravity, you know, so gravity, you drop an apple, where, what direction does it go? Well, down, unless you're in space and still goes down, but it's different. Um, but with behavior as with gravity, context will govern, but there are some broad strokes that can be applied to most of us. Most people want to be connected with others. Most people are saddened by loss. Most people dislike rejection. They like recognition and, and attention. They dislike ridicule. They care what other people think. They want to have some control over their lives. And he says nothing about this is groundbreaking, 
But the thing is, these violent people, we expect some sort of esoteric magic, but in reality, the same things we care about apply to them. And Gavin says, am I saying the shooting spree at work can be predicted in part by weighing the balance of factors as common as the eight general assumptions listed before? Yes. So think of someone calling a victim and scaring them with repeated threatening calls. They're enjoying the fear. But, and there's no way we can ever understand that, right? Well, think about this. His point is that in everything, that everything in that person's also in you. So I remember there's this great thing in martial arts schools called martial arts school justice. And so what, what ends up happening is if your instructor's cool, the only behavior that's allowed is cool behavior. And so if someone's not cool, what do you do? Well, what ends up happening is that instructor-sanctioned beatings until behavior improves is what occurs. And I'll never forget, there was this guy who bullied me in, in I don't know, eighth grade or something. And he, uh, and I was, you know, a black belt by then. But I was like really insecure and it's like I was really good at kicking, but I, I didn't, I didn't really know what would have happened if I would have just had to fight someone at school. Looking back, I would have murked him. But uh, he came into the Taekwondo school and we sparred and I just destroyed him. And he was like super cool and humble and it was the same thing. It was like, I, I was like, yes, I enjoyed his fear, if you think about it. And so it's like what Gavin's damn point is that I'm just, just belaboring is that we look at, you know, a, a, someone calling a victim saying, hey, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And we're like, there's no way I can understand that. But think of this school bully who gets in trouble in front of everybody. You're enjoying that. It's the schadenfreude. There's even a word in German. And every single interaction by a bad person has a similar analogy. We can understand it. We just have to give ourselves permission to predict it, Gavin would say. So illustrating that, think of a situation that a lot of us have shared. Getting to an airport late. So you're late, but you're not too late. You know, you're probably going to make it, but there's that level of anxiety. You definitely can't stop and get food. You're going to get to your gate, and if you have time, you get food, that type of thing. How would somebody act in that situation? Well, they're probably not going to be wanting to make conversation with the people in line. They're going to be checking their watch a lot. They're, they're probably more likely to be rude. Um, they're going to be doing that little airport shuffle where they're running, but like trying to look cool and they're not sprinting unless it's really important. They're going to be sprinting. Um, but because we're familiar with the airport situation, we all can predict that. It is precisely because some people are not familiar with violent behavior that they cannot predict it. So for an example, let's say that there's a woman who's comfortable with a stranger in her home. You know, maybe somebody's delivering furniture. The reason she's comfortable is, is her intuition has asked and answered several questions. It evaluated favorably and unfavorably the aspects of this person's behavior. So it's like, what are some favorable things that a furniture delivery person might do? Well, they might do their job, they might respect privacy, they might stand an appropriate distance away, they might wait to be escorted, um, you know, they're going to go quickly, um, they don't care if other people are home. But on the, on the flip side, what's somebody who maybe is not cool, if they're a furniture uh, delivery person, how would they act? Well, maybe they say, oh, hey, you know, I can, I can fix this toilet real quick. Do you want me to fix this toilet? And you're like, no. And then they're like, Hey, do you live alone? I'm like, um, why do you ask? Um, oh, and then they, they walk around your house and they're like, oh man, I love that painting. I love this. I love that. Um, hey, so is anybody expected today? Just curious. I'm going to be making some noise. I'm like, uh, what's going on? And throughout all of this, you are given the opportunity to react to a prediction that has already been completed by the time it comes into consciousness. Sometimes it feels like throwing a spear into the jungle but the only way to get better at intuitive predictions is by throwing that spear. Logic and judgment may sometimes be reluctant to follow that spear into the jungle, so the, context, so the concepts in the next chapter should help persuade them. I, re I recall the case of a man who drove to a hotel near his home and requested a room on the highest floor. Though he had no luggage, he was escorted up to the 18th floor by a bellman. As the tip, 
He gave the bellman everything he had in his wallet. He asked, does the room have paper and pen? Five minutes later, he jumped from the highest window, killing himself. And, and so Gavin's not blaming the hotel, but there's a bunch of questions about that situation. Why does this person have no luggage? Why does a person who lives nearby check into a hotel? Why does he want to be on the highest floor and ask for pen and paper? Why did he give away all his money? Knowing the question is the first step towards knowing the answer. And the crazy thing is, these signals apply universally across cultures. Everywhere in the world, the chin jutted forwards is a sign of aggression. The head slightly retracted, a sign of fear. The nostrils flared while taking a sharp breath is a sign of anger. Often, knowing the language of a given prediction is more important than understanding exactly what a person says. When predicting violence, some of the languages include the language of rejection, entitlement, grandiosity, attention-seeking, revenge, attachment, identity-seeking. And so what he's saying is that like, hey, we're going to be doing all this prediction, but you got to try to think about it through A, asking the questions. Like, why is that guy want, like, hey, um... I want a room on the highest floor. Like, okay, no, no problem. I, I'm not sure if we can um, make that happen though. Like, wh why do you need that? Or like, hey, sir, I'm just curious. Are you gonna have any luggage? Or like, just asking questions. But these signals apply, and it's it's these you know the the echoes of the things causing the behavior is rejection, entitlement, grandiosity, attention seeking. So knowing that we can understand those is the first step to predicting. But getting a little bit more systematic, he's gonna give us an acronym. So, so he gave us all of the techniques that we can be on the lookout for. And now he's gonna give us an acronym. This is, this is his mental model for, for thinking about violence. We're gonna to touch on a few other examples of specifics, and then we're gonna wrap this bitch up. JACA, J-A-C-A. This is what helps him predict violence. J is perceived justification. Does the person feel justified in using violence? Now again, this isn't, are they justified? It's do they feel justified? They could be totally mentally ill and you looked at them wrong and they did an overhand right and cracked you in the face and then yelled your name after getting face fucked. Perceived justification can be as simple as being sufficiently provoked. Like if someone stepped on your foot, or as convoluted as looking for an excuse to argue with the spouse that starts the disagreement in order to justify an angry response. So just perceive justification, you have to use your mind, but it, it could be you step on someone's foot and they're mad, or it could be, you know, your wife's like, hey, you never, you never talked to me about politics. Okay, well, what do you wanna talk about? What do you think about gun rights? Well, I generally believe in the constitution. <laughs> You're a trumper. A is perceived alternatives does the person perceive that he's a, that he has available alternatives to violence that will move him towards the outcome he wants if a person's desired outcome is to inflict physical injury then there are few alternatives to violence if the desired outcome is to punish someone there might be many it is when he perceives no alternatives that violence is most likely so you know justification is a very personal thing but like, does this person in their crazy mind, or do they feel justified? A is alternatives. Like, what do they want? Do they want their job back? Okay, if they do, there's probably a bunch more alternatives. Do they just want to? Do they just want to suck your pain and enjoy your suffering? Okay, well, if that's the case, like, they might either be able to try to get you fired or like hurt you. So, what are the perceived alternatives? C is consequences. Okay, what are the perceived consequences? Um, you know, the reason that my uh, friend and I who grew up doing martial arts together didn't just beat the fuck out of snots and leave him in the hallway was because of consequences. We were like, well, we like being in the fraternity. This would, we get kicked out of the fraternity. You know, so like two Vulcans trying their best to be good because they logically understand that being good helps a cohesive society. My friend and I had a five minute debate, but we, we ended up deciding, you know what? The consequences probably would, would you know, be medium. And um, we, we, just, we just don't want to do it. So consequences. What, what do they think will happen if they do the violence? And then last is ability or perceived ability. Does the person believe he can be successful? 
do they believe that they can deliver the blows or bullet or bomb? You know, so it's like somebody who is, um, you know, feels like they are chosen by God, probably probably has a, a high level of perceived ability. Um, and, and so, you know, it's 2023 times. Think about um, that Nashville active shooter. Dude, within five minutes, the three cops that had never worked, worked together before calmlessly and ruthlessly hunted this active shooter and killed him in five minutes. That sends a message to a would-be active shooter. It's like, hey, you can try this out. But dude, there's gonna be some fucking consequences and you don't have the ability to pull this off. If you wanna act like a crazy rabid dog, don't worry. The fabric of our society will fucking put you down in five minutes and then stream it on the internet for Mike Glover to review so we can all learn self-defense tips. That we wanna believe that violence is a matter of cause and effect. It is actually a process. A chain in which the violent outcome is only one link. The process of suicide or homicide starts way before the act. To be as free from violence as possible, we need to recapture our inherent predictive skills. In the following chapters, the elements of prediction and intuition that I've discussed will come together in practice. You'll see that just as hearing intuition is no more than reading the signals we give ourselves, predicting human behaviors is no more than reading the signals others give us. And so, because I can't have a million year podcast, um, he's going to deep dive into a bunch of different examples. Because you know, remember, he runs this, this consulting company. So he's going to talk about threats. He's going to talk about stalking, assassinations, um, you know, child violence, spousal abuse. I, I'm going to pick out a couple of the best. And really, you know, if you've made it this far, we already know the most important thing, which is listen to our intuition. We've learned some of these tactics people use on us. And um, if we can think about a potential violent person and say, Jaka, justification, alternatives, perceived consequences and perceived ability, that got us most of the way. But I think there's a few more interesting things that we got to suck out and then we'll move along, little buddy. And so there's a whole chapter on threats, which we're skipping. But uh, the, the summary is, if someone really wants to hurt you, they're probably not going to call a bunch of threats in. So um, use your mind. It's probably the guy who wants something from you. Next, we're going to go to persistence. Okay, and this is in general, but it's also specific to stalking. Just like pizza, we Americans didn't invent persistence, but we sure have embraced it. Imagine you and your wife own a travel agency. 50 people, you go to dinner, you meet a young guy who starts pitching you on his idea. A father-son travel package. He's a little too enthusiastic. You're kind of annoyed, but it's a networking event. Who fucking likes these ever? Nobody. So you politely say goodnight. But the next day, you know, we'll say Thursday morning, you get a phone call from this kid at 8.01 a.m. Let's call him Mike. He says, hey, can I stop by today and we can continue our business discussions? All I need is 10 minutes. And you're like, what do you mean business discussions? You just kind of annoyed me last night, but um, I don't want to be rude. And so, you know, you say, fine, show up at two today. And so you show up, but dude, you run the fucking company. So like two o'clock really means like whenever you fucking want to. So you show up at like 2.07 and he's like, hey, I thought you said two. And you know, you're now in your head like, yeah, sorry, man, I was a little bit late. And they're like, why am I justifying myself to this guy? He goes on and on and on. He, he's pitching you. He's he's like, you know, hey, I, I, I want to do this idea. I want to do this idea. And you're like, well, man, this guy's fucking persistent. And you're like, well, I don't usually work with outside agents. And he's like, no, don't worry. You can hire me under your full, on your team full time. And you're like, well, there isn't an opening. He's like, well, that's okay. I can help. And maybe when there's an opening, we can make it official. And then you're like, well, you know, one of my agents actually is getting married and might be moving. You're like, why did I say that? But there's nothing right now. And so, you know, this guy's like rabidly sitting there waiting for this job. He calls your employee who's going to be moving. And she's like, hey, I got a really weird call from some guy named Mike who said that you're going to give him a job. You're like, are you serious? Bunch of back and forth. This dude's inserting himself into your business. The next day, he calls again and again and again. What do you do? You know, I feel like I, I must have led him on. Yeah, I can't just not return his calls. I don't want him to get angry. But Gavin points out, listen, he was angry the moment we didn't become his best friends and go into business with him right then. So just, just ignore him. 
You know, if Tommy could read a lifelong partnership into almost nothing, then a response could be taken by him in who knows what ways. And so, um, you know, basically Gavin's talking about this through the context of this business example where, you know, every time you talk to this guy, you're giving him a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope. Um, When a person requires something unattainable, like total submission to an unreasonable demand, it is time to stop negotiating because it is because it is clear that person cannot be satisfied. Engage and enrage. And there's a lot more stuff in there. You know, if you're being fucking stalked, I'm, I'm not here to tell you I can actually help you read the book. But the overall summary of this stalking section is if you feed it, then you will like if you engage, you will enrage them. It'll get worse. And so as best as you can, it, you just have to just have to step back and, and let the person burn themselves out. And if you don't, you might be like this newscaster who's getting these overly complimentary letters, but instead of ignoring them, you know, because he was, you know, there, there's people and Gavin talks about there's people who send thousands of letters a year to famous people. And that's all they do. They're just kind of like weirdly obsessed people who are fine. But this news anchor he sent private investigators out to this guy's house. He threatened him. It got worse, it got worse, it got worse. He sued him. The letters started being more threatening. He sent the cops again. They even arrested this guy. It just escalated and escalated. And finally, this guy was about to go on vacation. They were doing a big send-off, and he got killed. The newscaster got killed by this stalker. And in the mind of this stalker, he had just defended himself in a way he'd obviously been thinking of for some time. So I think the interesting point, I mean, it's kind of interesting, not stat relevant to me, but I think, you know, it's like, hey, when you get someone who's like fixated and crazy, you know, like the best way is to figure out how not to engage. Because anytime you're engaging, it's getting worse. Occupational hazards. So the next area that um, Gavin's going to talk about. So we just, we just real quick touched on stalking. You know, we've gotten the meat of this. There's a couple interesting things that we're going we're gonna to go through. The next is workplace violence. Okay, and, and that's something that we hear more and more about. You know, these active shooter situations, super fucked up. So Gavin starts his story and he says, Dear Laura, it's time to remove the kid gloves. In my opinion, it's my option to make your life miserable if that is what you really want. I told you, if I get fired or lose my clearance, I can force you to go out with me. I've sold my houses. I've liquidated my retirement account. I know your parents' address. Let's say you don't back down and pretty soon I crack from the pressure and run amok, destroying everything in my path until the police catch me and kill me. Take care. Rick. Now, who the fuck is Rick and why is he so mad? Well, um, the man who wrote this letter was named Richard Farley and the woman was Laura Black. They met at a Silicon Valley startup, and after Laura refused to go out with him, he got more and more aggressive, up to sending her an envelope with a key to her front door. So you meet a guy at work, and he asks you out, and you're like, no thank you. And then he gets more and more and more and more aggressive, and he's sending you letters, and he's sending you that fucking letter. And then he sends you a key to your front door, and you're like, damn it, this guy's guy, this guy a key to my house. When supervisors told Farley he'd be fired if he kept this up, his sinister reaction prompted one of them to ask him incredulously, are you saying you're going to kill me if you get fired? And he says, not just you. Well, he gets fired. He gets banned from work, but he came back one day with a vengeance. He passed through the access doors, literally through them after blasting out the glass with one of the shotguns he'd brought along. He was also carrying a rifle and multiple handguns. When he finally found Laura Black, he shot her once with a rifle and left her bleeding on the floor. He shot 10 other people that day, seven of whom died. She says, the restraining order was the catalyst that pushed him over the edge. Newspeople reported that Farley just snapped and went in on a shooting spree, but that never ever happens. And this is the point. All this violence, all of it, has pre-incident indicators. Jaka has shown that people don't just snap. There's a process as observable and often as predictable as water coming to a boil. So did he feel justified? Yeah, he felt totally wronged. Alternatives. What did he want? Well, he wanted to go out with her, 
And so he was trying everything. But you know what? It got to a point where he had no alternatives. If, if I can't have her, no one can. Consequences. Well, she's worth more than living. And then ability. He was just like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to do it. I've got the guns. I'm going to fucking do it. And so the point, though, and he, he shares a couple other stories of workplace violence, but the point is that it's never just super random. He says, knowing the little we, we even know now, he bets these people would have made different choices. Case histories are usually littered with letters, memoranda, and recollections that show people felt uncomfortable, threatened, intimidated, and unsafe because of the very person who later committed atrocious acts of violence. So the point is, you know, it's not just random. You know, if you're at work and there's somebody who's really threatening, you know, there's 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 clues. You know, these people are going to have um, a bunch of issues and their personnel file is going to be littered with uh, these issues and these clues. And so um, Gavin's just going to talk about a few of these. You know, this is in the context of workplace violence, but I mean, think about it from just in general. Uh, use these to inform your intuition. So is the person inflexible? You know, do they risk, resist change? Are they unwilling to, do, to discuss ideas that aren't their own? Which, think about that, man. That's crazy. Like, I don't know, 40% of the world is like that? So, okay, obviously is not just one. Um, weapons. You know, he's obtained a weapon within the last 90 days or he has a weapons collection. He makes jokes or frequent comments about weapons or discusses weapons as an instrument of power. And, you know, I'm like, I feel like every American might fall into that category. So obviously it's not just one. Um, sad. Is he sullen, angry, or depressed? Hopelessness. You know, as he said, things like, what's the use? I ain't got no future. Identification. Um, you know, does he, has he, like, does he track serial killers and have favorite serial killers? Like, hmm, okay, that's, that's a clue. Or like, is he all up on every workplace shooting and like, talks about it a bunch and then this is where gavin's kind of like an old man and he says does he love violent movies it's like hold on a second there bro praising workplace violence is way different than just liking the movie the northman um co-worker fear have there been co-workers who are afraid of him um has he done threats intimidation manipulations or escalations like hey if this department does this you'll be sorry is he paranoid how does he react to criticism? Has he been focused and like kind of stalked another one of your employees? And and all that seems like, like, oh my God, if somebody did that, I'd fire him. But Gavin's point is every day, there are these pre-incident indicators and not all serious cases will have all of these, but these are some warning signs to be alert to. Difficult terminations and situations involving threatening employees are similar to other volatile social situations. You know, this is the same concepts to divorce, disputes between neighbors, disputes with financial, financial institutions, dissolving partnerships. What they all have in common is that the interests of one party are in direct conflict with the interests of another party. And so, you know, this, this person usually isn't doing like great in life. And so the loss of his job may knock over the last few remaining dominoes, but the one that employers must be careful not to topple is the dignity domino because when that falls violence is most likely so all that shit to say is gavin gavin 100 percent saying you can predict every single workplace shooting no probably not but he's saying could we get a lot more likely by being open to these facts and if we find someone that has a bunch of these clues be careful because they're probably not doing great in life just in general and so you know it's like that old rule um, you got to leave them with dignity. So if you are going to fire somebody like this, you just got to be real careful about it. But it's the right move. Don't engage. Don't feed the fire. Just try to step away as best as you can. And so the last thing that we're going to talk about is assassinations. And again, all of this is the, is the tip of the iceberg. Read the damn book. Better to be wanted by the police than not be wanted at all. And so, dude, Gavin's so legit at, taking it, at doing intros, I'm taking notes. The intercom in Rebecca Schaefer's apartment was broken, so when the buzzer rang on Sunday morning, she had to go down to see who it was. It turned out 
to be a fan who'd first seen the young actress on her weekly TV show, My Sister Sam. She spoke to him briefly, and he left. A while later, the buzzer sounded again. She went down to see who it was. It was the same man again, but this time, he was not her admirer. He was her murderer. He fired one shot into her chest. She screamed out, why, why, and fell to the floor. She was still alive as he stood there looking down on her. He could have asked someone in the building to call an ambulance, or he could have called one himself, but that would have defeated the whole purpose, assassination. Among individual crimes, assassination has the greatest impact on the American psyche. A nation based on the concept of the majority choosing its leaders is entirely undermined when a minority, usually one person, undoes that choice with a gun. Whether the assassin's target is the mayor of Laporte, Indiana, who was killed in his bed by an angry citizen, or the president of the United States, the system we live by also falls victim. Because of their disproportionate impact on our culture, identifying those people who will attack a public figure is our nation's highest stakes behavioral prediction, one that affects nearly everybody and why I started my company. The predictability of pre-attack behaviors of assassins is striking. 10 behaviors common to modern assassins are displayed some mental disorder, researched the victim, they created a diary, journal, or a record, they obtained a weapon, maybe they communicated inappropriately with the, sub, with the public figure, they display an exaggerated idea of self, grandiosity, they, um, maybe they exhibited random travel, they identified with a stalker or assassin, They're like, man, you know, this, this, this is my favorite assassin, We're like, what? Who even knows the name of assassins? Um, they have the ability to circumvent ordinary security. So maybe, you know, like what he's saying is, hmm, ability is important. So if it's a, you know, like a, a crazy government employee who has the ability to get behind security, that's more dangerous. Um, maybe they made repeated approaches to a public figure. And to close this out, there's one story that brings all the elements we've taught, we've discussed so far together, a virtual hall of fame of American violence. At about 4 p.m. on July 20th, 1983, Gavin was at a hotel in L.A. to meet with a client who was finishing up a public appearance. As I crossed the lobby, I was waved, waved over by one of the several people assigned to my client for my company's protective security detail. He told me about an important radio call and suggested I take it from one of the cars. The report I received was an alarming one. It would clear my schedule for the day and for the next 30 days following police in Jennings County, Louisiana, had discovered the bodies of five people brutally murdered. The lead suspect, Michael Perry. It was not the first time I'd heard his name. Michael Perry was among thousands of mentally ill pursuers my office had under assessment, but one of the very few people we placed in the highest hazard category. Damn, so Gavin's business is like, he's got dossiers on a thousand people. That's insane. The radio call was personal to me because the public figure Perry was obsessed with was not only a longtime client, but was also a dear friend. The client Perry was obsessed with was an internationally known recording artist and film actress. She already had a team of PSD agents who had been assigned to her home for about a year. The precaution of full-time guard was because we feared Perry might show up and also she had another stalker. <laughs> Alarming reports are not uncommon for major, major media figures, but usually the more you learn about a situation, the less serious it turns out to be. The exact opposite happened in the Michael Perry case. To insulate clients from routine management of safety issues, I maintain a policy of not telling them about particular cases unless there's something they must personally do. The Perry matter had reached that point, and here is what I intended to tell my client. Perry had been obsessed with her for about two years. He was an accomplished survivalist who had been to LA several times in pursuit of her. Perry's parents were among the homicide victims and a high-powered rifle and at least two handguns were missing at the time. He also had recently told a psychiatrist that his client was evil and should be killed. Before making that call, however, I was informed of one more detail that changed everything. Based on what I learned about a few words Perry had written on a sheet of paper found at the murder scene, I did something I'd never done before and haven't done since, even though clients have faced very serious hazards. I called my client 
and asked her to pack a few day pack for a few days because I'd be there within 30 minutes to pick her up and take her to her hotel. Given what I just learned, I didn't feel we could adequately protect her at her home, even with a team of bodyguards. So Gavin is at this different client, gets this radio call saying, hey, you remember one of those crazy people that were, that were surveilling? Yeah, he just killed five people and he's coming for your client, we think. But there's one little piece of information that made Gavin treat this with urgency that he had never, never done up till then and has not done since. And that was a little piece of paper with 10 names on it. And it was Perry's hit list. And he'd written Sky next to the ones he'd killed and didn't have Sky written to others, meaning he was going to kill them. So Gavin is like, okay, this seems serious. And then he sees the list and the five people that he just killed are on the list. And it says Sky and his client is on the list. So he's like, God damn it. Okay, now we got to find Michael Perry. Grace and Chester Perry had long ago predicted their son would someday kill them. Whenever he was in town, his mother locked herself in the house and he was rarely allowed unless his father was home. Super weird guy. Uh, he liked to be called the nickname Crab. He won, One day he legally changed his name to I. Um, he you know, was just super weirdo. He actually shot out his parents' eyes with a shotgun because he didn't want them watching him anymore. But when Gavin's team visited the house after the murders, they found an assortment of items in a crib in the living room. A crucifix, a pillow, three family photos face down, a wall plaque of the Virgin Mary, and a ceramic crab. And um, they're trying to find this guy. They're you know, bringing all these experts. And you know, one of the lists of one of the people on the list was uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, a politician. And so um, Gavin kind of walks through his thought process, and he ends up predicting where this guy's gonna go and the guy's caught and and so gavin saves the day you know another police officer saves the day too but uh within an hour of catching this guy uh gavin is on the phone with him and he, he's like because the police officer's like hey we caught him you want to interview him Gavin's like yes and so without preparation gavin says i stumbled into an interview with the nation's most wanted killer we knew he'd been to my client's home so i first asked him about that he lied without hesitation, sounding like a fast-talking, streetwise con man. I don't think I've ever been to her house, sir. I don't think I, I really don't know. Then, without asking, he told me how my client fit into his reasons for killing. When, he, when she was in that movie, she turned around and she looked, she had a different face. You know, she looked just like my mother back in 1961. In 1961, my mother walked into my room, had this really ugly look on her face, and in that movie... And that actress reminded me of her. So the whole reason that that this dude's coming for this actress is that he that is that she kind of looked like his mom from that one movie she was in. <sighs> the emergency that had consumed nearly every hour of every person in my company had just ended, not with a stakeout or a gunfight, but with a phone call. The Perry case shows that even those most public crimes are motivated by the most personal issues. Though the odds are overwhelming that you'll never appear on the death list of some mass killer, I've discussed the case here to add to your understanding of violence and also reveal the human truth of these crimes. <sighs> well, holy shit. We've almost made it. Let's wind this down. Ending. The gift of fear. We all know there are plenty of reasons to fear people from time to time. The question is, what are those times? Far too many people are walking around in a constant state of fear, their intuition misinformed about what really poses danger. It needn't be so. When you honor accurate intuitive signals and evaluate them without denial, you will be safer and you can live without fear. Now, he's basically trying to be like, hey guys, you know, you don't need to be constantly wary, just have a good intuition and like okay little buddy you obviously haven't read colonel cooper's work uh colonel cooper picks vacations by amenities which in his definition are vacations where he's allowed to take a rifle into the bathroom but i get your point it's not equal it's not balanced there's a few things we really need to pay attention to and a lot that don't matter and your thesis is that we can actually be aware of this a lot more than we think there are two rules about fear 
that if you accept them, can reduce its frequently frequency and literally transform your experience of life. Rule one is the fact that you fear something is solid evidence that it's not happening yet. Fear summons powerful predictive resources that tell us what might come next. Rule two, what you fear is rarely what you think you fear. It is what you link to fear. Take anything about which you felt profound fear and link it to each of the possible outcomes. When it is real fear, it will either be in the presence of danger or it'll link to pain or death. When we get a fear signal, our intuition has already made many connections. To best respond, bring the links into consciousness and follow them to their high stakes prediction. It will lead there. Let's go one step deeper in this exploration of fear. In the 1960s, there was a study done that sought to determine which single word has the greatest psychological impact on people. You wanna know what it was? The word shark. But there's one predator even more scary than the great white, man. Man is a predator of far more spectacular ability. The shark does not have dexterity, guile, deceit, cleverness, or disguise. It also does not have our brutality. As with the shark attack, randomness and lack of warning are the attributes of human violence we fear the most, but you now know that human violence is rarely random and rarely without warning. Everything you need to know about how to be safe from people is in you, enhanced by your lifetime of experience and hopefully better organized by this book. You now know a great deal about predicting and avoiding violence from the dangers posed by strangers to the brutally inflicted violence on friends and family members to the extraordinary crimes that will touch only a few. With your intuition better informed, I hope you will have less unwarranted fear of people. I hope you'll harness and respect your ability to recognize survival signals. And most importantly, I hope you'll see hazard only in those storm clouds where it exists and live life more fully in the clear skies between them. Holy God, what a book. Actual required reading for any Kusemono who's, who is trying to survive in this world. Whether you're rich, famous, or just someone interested in self-defense, you can take something from this book and you can take something from this series. The tactics that the first attacker used on Kelly, force teaming, unnecessary details, promises, or maybe there's a crazy guy at work. Should I be concerned? Think about Jaka. What's my justification? Alternatives, perceived consequences, and perceived ability. Or maybe there isn't something as specific as that, but merely the simple fact of being exposed to this material downloads a firmware update to your intuition. Since if we, if we buy into Gavin's thesis, everything we could ever need for the high stakes game of prediction known as survival is already in us. And so, as we end this winding journey through the chasms of reality, we'll end with a quote by the all-father of all of this. Bruce Lee, the most dangerous person is the one who listens, thinks, and observes. Amen. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.